Uh, good morning. It's, uh, it's always good to, to be together as a church and, and for, uh, for bringing the church in here. We want to say thank you and, and welcome to all who are new. Uh, we're a, we are in the middle of a series, kind of uh, coming towards the tail end of a series called uh, We're Not Meant to Be Alone. It's not good to be alone, but people are, uh, people are annoying. And that's just kind of the reality that we've come to see in Scripture and the reality that many of us have come to realize in life as well. I... Um, in the, in the last three weeks, yeah, we've seen that God made us for community. We've seen that it's sinfulness and selfishness that causes us to, to break community and for community to become a difficult thing and for the, the great blessing of relationships uh, to become oftentimes a great inflictor of pain within our lives. Uh, we saw that um, we've got to own our part, and, and, and last week we saw Jesus' prescription for what did we do when we're living in conflict with others. Um, over the past uh, few weeks, um, you know, our website uh, tracks statistics and things like that, and it's, it's shown that um, this has been one of the most uh, re-listened to series, I think because uh, we realized that, yeah, we are made for people. But at the same time, so often relationships can be messy and they can be difficult and they can cause pain in our lives. Even the best relationships, the best families, the best marriages, the best parent-child relationships, the best boyfriend-girlfriend relationships, best friend relationships can oftentimes inflict a lot of pain in our hearts. But I want to thank you for... um, yeah, for just sticking it through and for, for, for trying to live this out. I've had uh, several really awesome conversations with people who are fighting to live this out and, and uh, really struggling to do this. I want to um, read a, uh, just a, a message that I got um, earlier this week um, from one of, our, one of our harvesters about the ways in which um, they're trying to live this out. They said, um, hey, not only this past Sunday, but every Sunday I, I feel refreshed and eager to change. Uh, from Sunday to Monday, I was faced with some really trying family issues. And normally, I would have called my mom to vent. Um, instead, uh, taking Jesus' prescription, I faced a person uh, face-to-face and, and spoke from their perspective one-on-one. I apologized first and explained my thoughts and the whole time continuously praying about it while doing the Daniel fast. Um, all in all, it was resolved in such a, so well. And I was and, and still am so full from the blessed result. I don't feel hungry or anxious to feed my body. Um, thank you so much for sharing this word with us. Um, this is just a, a sampling of, of some conversations that I've had. And, and I know there are others who have said that um, they've, they've sought reconciliation with estranged uh, relationships within the family and with relationships with, with friends and other church members. And uh, for that, I'm really thankful because I, I know... I know the tendency with this kind of series. I likened this a couple weeks ago to a colonoscopy where it's not easy, it's uncomfortable, but it's necessary for our health. <clears throat> I know that um, every sermon, the temptation is to listen to a message and say, okay, that was good, but I really hope I never have to think about that ever again. And in particular, there's two kinds of topics, two topics, two sermons, two kinds of sermons that can be preached where this is really, 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 uh, the temptation is stronger than ever. I think one is a, a sermon about money, and the other is a sermon about relationships and forgiveness. And we begin to feel something within our hearts. We're like, yeah, I need to do something about it. But at the same time, it's really easy for us to want to kind of shove it down in the deepest recesses of our lives and, and never come back to it ever again, because we know that it's going to take work, and it's going to reorient and redirect our lives Uh, in a way that God wants us to live, but we know that there's going to be cost involved in following the call of God in in obedience. But I do want to say thank you, because I know that you're struggling with this. 
Um, you really are. You're fighting through this. And I know that as I hear uh, from different house church shepherds, like, we're, we're fighting through this. And so I want to say thanks for that. I also understand that if one conflict gets resolved, it, it's kind of like those cartoons where, you, where the character is sitting on a boat and there's a bunch of holes. And as soon as they plug one hole, another hole pops up. I know that that's easy for that to happen because we're living life in, in a fallen and broken world. And until we get to heaven where everybody is normal, uh, we, will, <laughs> we will live in this broken place and there will be conflict. And so I want to ask, what do we do? And maybe for, for three weeks we've been listening to this. We're here in the fourth week and I still got conflict with somebody. Or I, I've resolved these conflicts, but I know that they're going to come up again. What should our attitude be as we relate to people with whom we are in constant conflict uh, with. Right? How should we relate to them, not just today, but as we move forward? What should our attitude, our posture, our behavior be as we interact with people with whom uh, it's so easy for us to get into conflict? We're going to look at Colossians chapter 3. <clears throat> we're, going <to> read <clears throat> we're going to read verses 12 through 14. And we're going to see uh, the Apostle Paul See, the Apostle Paul, he knew what it was to be in conflict. He was the greatest apostle, probably the greatest Christian who ever lived. And yet, with two of his best friends, the Apostle Peter, right, one of the pillars of the early church, and with Barnabas, the man who believed in him and helped him to become everything that he was as the Apostle Paul, with these two great heroes of the faith, the Apostle Paul also got into deep and heavy and severe conflict with them. And so you see that a great majority of the New Testament is spent talking about how we can get along with other people because it's our reality that we have severed relationships, but also the greater reality that in healing them and in, in, in coming to forgiveness and reconciliation, it's one of the greatest blessings that we could experience. So what should our attitude be? Colossians 3, verse 12. This is the word of God for the people of God. Therefore, as God's chosen people, Holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is God's Word. Some challenging stuff. What I want to ask you to do again is I want you to think about somebody with whom you're in relational conflict. Okay, so think about that person again. <laughs> Some of you are looking at each other right now. I don't know if that's a good thing or if that's a bad thing or if you're just saying uh, you know who that person is and it may or may not be you. But think about that person, right, uh, kind of write their name in the sky with the pencil of your heart uh, and think about that person. And who's that person with whom you're in relational conflict? I want to talk about how we're supposed to relate to them. The analogy is very simple and it's very clear and thankful for the Apostle Paul as he gives us this picture. It's a picture of clothing. Uh, three things that define our attitude towards people. Here's the first thing. Put on your uniform. Okay, put on your uniform and remember that you're on the same team. Okay, again, this is the word of God for the people of God. So he's talking to people who consider themselves to be followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not talking to non-Christians right now. He's talking to people who say that I am God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. 
in verse 8, this is what he says. He says, but now you must rid yourselves. Okay, he's saying these are the clothes to take off. For, uh, but now you must take off the clothes of anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. So you think about that person in your mind, <laughs> your parent, ah, your spouse, your child, your former BFF, who is now just your F, your friend. You think about that person. Has there been anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips? If there is, he's saying, hey, that's okay, but take these things off. And here's the uniform that you've got to put on, verse 12. As God's chosen people, here it is, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Wow. That's huge, right? That's a big change. That's a big change. If you've got beef with somebody, if you've got issues with somebody, he's saying take off all of that stuff. That's the clothing of the world, and you put on this new uniform. Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying if you put on these things, compassion, kindness, humility, patience, gentleness, if you put these things on, then you'll become a child of God. That's not what he's saying, right? We can't work for this any more than you can go to the store and put on an Orlando Magic uniform, and all of a sudden you're part of the magic. It doesn't work that way. But if you're part of the magic, then you'll get a uniform that you get to wear. That's what he's saying. If you are a child of God, you've been given a new set of clothes. You've been given a new uniform, and he's saying it's not enough to have it. You've got to put that junk on because this is what it means to be a child of God. Every year uh, during either Labor Day or, or, or Fourth of July here in, in Florida, the Korean Association gets together in different cities, and they say, we're going to do a big sports festival and so uh, I think it was a couple years ago that that big festival was kind of like the Olympics, played different sports, uh, but the caliber is a lot lower and the number of uh, events is a lot smaller. Uh, but a few of us from, uh, from Orlando were representing Team Orlando, and uh, we got there uh, to Tampa, and uh, some of us were playing different sports. We got there, our, our color was blue, so we're supposed to wear blue, and we got there, uh, they said, we've got uniforms for you. We're like, oh, really? This is a Korean association. It's not like the Korean-American association or the Asian-American, like people who live in America uh, who, who have like a American uh, traditional cool customs. This is a Korean association. So uh, they gave us these uniforms, and they were so proud and so excited to give it to us. It had uh, Central Florida written on the back in, in all Korean, and they handed it to us. Uh, they said, what size would you like? I said, I would like a large, and they gave it to me, and I opened it up, and it just was like a nightgown. Like, it was huge. Uh, it, it went down to the middle of my, middle of my thigh, a T-shirt, right? Went down to here, and they said, here's your uniform. Please wear it. And I was like, uh, I don't think I want to wear this. And other people started coming in from our team. They had traveled from Orlando. We had slept a night in Tampa at, at Olive's cousin's place. And I was like, yeah, do you have anything smaller? They're like, no, there are a lot smaller people than you, and it would be too big for them. I'm like, dude, this is like crazy. It is like, not only does it feel like a nightgown, can't even walk, let alone run, but it was like the thickest cotton. Like, this is not dry fit. It's not Nike. It's something like the tag was like, the tag was huge, and it felt like I was wearing a suit of armor. So I was like, I don't think we can play in this. Other people came. I said, guys, here's your uniform. Y'all can wear this. I'll give mine up. There's it's not enough for you, but uh, you can take mine. They're like, I don't want to wear this. And so they said in Korean, they said, ya kok That means you have to wear this. You have to wear this. And I said, I don't think we can wear this. We can't. If you, either we wear this and lose, but they'll know we're Team Orlando, or we don't wear it and we try to win. And they're like, no, 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 you have to wear it. And we said, no, we can't. We've got our own shirts. These are more comfortable. We've got our own pants. Uh, these are more comfortable. We don't need to wear these things. And they're like, no, no, no. And so they said to me, oh, pastor, if you wear it, then other people are going to wear it also. 
And I said, first of all, uh, I don't believe that if I wear it, anyone else is going to wear it. And second of all, <laughs> no thank you, that's okay. <laughs> and they got all upset, but they're like, how will we know that you're Team Orlando, Orlando fighting, right? That's what Korean people say, that's your way of saying, yeah, you can do it. But I said, no, I think they'll know by the other blue shirts that we're wearing. And they were kind of upset. Um, we looked uh, better, but we still lost anyways, and it was just a tragic day altogether. But there's a difference between having the uniform and wearing the uniform. And what Paul is saying is, listen, Team Orlando, you could have the uniform and choose not to wear it, but you can't do that as a child of God. If you're a child of God and you're in relational conflict with somebody, remember that you've got to put your uniform on. Put your uniform on, and here's what the uniform looks like. It says the first part, five parts to it. i just talk real quick. He says, compassion. If you're in an argument with somebody, somebody's acting cold to you, someone's acting mean to you, you're acting mean to somebody, he said the first part of the clothing you need to wear is compassion. That means compassion with suffer. Suffer with them. Because if they've got issues with you, it's not a purely one-sided thing. If you've got issues with them, there's probably something that they've got at odds with you also, and they're suffering as a result of the relational breach that has been brought upon by their issues as well as our part in it. But there's always a little bit of part that we play, and what Paul is saying is before you think about your needs as a child of God, think about their needs and think about their suffering and walk in their shoes for a moment and try to understand from their perspective the reason why they're suffering and the reason why they're hurting. And he says that'll go a long way in helping to understand why there's conflict in the first place because, again, the issue is not who is wrong. The issue is what is wrong. This is what we're always trying to focus on. The issue is not who's at fault. The issue is what the problem is. We never attack people. We always attack problems. That's conflict resolution 101. So he's saying have compassion and understand why they may be feeling the things that they are feeling. Then he goes on and he says the next four things, next four things, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience are all related to one another. Kindness means to treat the other person the way that Jesus would treat them, having the attitude of Jesus towards that person. What would Jesus, how would Jesus act towards that person with whom you are in relational difficulty with. He would respond in kindness. Kindness is basically compassion in action. So you think about why they're suffering, and kindness is moving towards them and putting that compassion in action. Here's what kindness is. It's treating them the way that Jesus would treat them. And humility, okay? humility is treating ourselves the way that Jesus treats us. Sometimes we think, you know what, they're the one who done 80% of the wrong. They need to fix their issue before I say anything to them. They need to come groveling back for forgiveness because they're the one who took my girlfriend. They need to come groveling back to me because they're the one who talks smack about me. They need to do that. But humility says, no, 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 no. It's not about you're in a position higher than the other person because you think you're self-righteous. At the foot of the cross, everybody is level. It's the great equalizer. And we come to the cross and we begin to realize in humility, I'm not better than the other person. In fact, the way of Christ in humility, Philippians tells us, to consider in humility others better than yourself. Here's what humility says, guys. This is hard. 
It says, if somebody's going to hurt in this relationship, then it's going to be me and not them. That's what humility says. It's not, I'm going to make myself uh, look worse than everybody else. It's standing up as tall as you can be and then realizing the puniness of your greatness, of your seeming greatness, in light of the greatness of who God is. That's humility. How would our relationships with this person in your mind be different if we entered with a posture of humility? He goes on and he says, gentleness. Gentleness is what happens when kindness and humility meet in our approach to the other person. If we understand what kindness is the way Jesus sees them, we understand humility the way Jesus sees me, and we put these together, then we approach the person, the way that will come out is in gentleness. And we don't go in an abrasive way. We don't go to throw stones at them. We come in an attitude of gentleness. And then the last one, patience. Patience then is what happens when kindness and humility meet in our response to their actions. Gentleness was kindness and humility in our approach to a person. Patience is kindness and humility in our response to people. So whatever it is that they do, whatever they've done, we respond to them in patience. Again, he's... The presupposition is you have already plugged into a fountain of mercy and grace that comes through Jesus Christ. You're not saying you need to produce these things. Again, that's why it's not do these things and then you'll be a child of God. He's saying if you're a child of God, if you know what it is to sing, oh, praise the name of the Lord my God, our God, then you understand you've been connected to a fountain from which this flows. He said if you've got the uniform, then put it on because the other part it says is why do we wear a uniform? Why is it that we have to wear it? Because if everyone wore the same thing, you wouldn't know who's on the same team as you. And again, we've been saying this for every week. The mo- one of the most important, significant truths that, that Olive brought into our marriage is that when we get into conflict, I'm not her enemy. We're on the same team. And you have to realize that the people with whom you're in conflict, especially if they're in the family of God, you're on the same team. And the uniform tells us that. What if the person that you've got in your heart, in your mind, is in here also? What if both of you decided, okay, I'm going to put on the clothes of a child of God, and then we're going to go to the other person, and I'm going to lead in humility and in kindness and in gentleness? What would that look like for our relationships? Instead of us being like, nah, you know what, uh, they disrespected me first, they need to come to me. Or instead of saying, I'm older and they need to come to me first. Right? Getting rid of these, like, these, uh, the, these Confucian notions and, 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 just really, and, and these worldly notions of who needs to do what first. But coming in a posture of gospel humility and putting on the clothing of Christ. Right? What would it look like if we heeded the word of God? Listen, guys, we don't... We don't suspend our identity as children of God because I'm going to work. And in the workplace, it's different. We don't suspend our identity as children of God and say it's different because he's my husband and he's a jerk. No, we don't do that. We don't suspend our identity as children of God because they're the ones who did more of the wrong against me. That's not what he's saying. Saying the attitude and the posture of Christians is different. It's a counterculture that we bring into this. And if Indeed, what Jesus said is true, that a house 
divided against itself cannot stand, then it stands to be that the person we're in argument with, if they're a follower of Christ, is not our enemy. And there's another enemy. Whenever I hear somebody say, you know what, I've got an issue with this other believer, the first thing I think is the enemy wants to divide and conquer. And so our first response ought to be to go to God in prayer, surrender this to the Lord in prayer. You remember the movie? There was a movie that came out um, about 15 years ago called The Sum of All Fears, Tom Clancy movie. It's really, it's, it's huge in terms of illustrating some major concepts as it relates to conflict here. It's, it, I forget exactly how it happens because I only read a plot summary of it, but I think in the beginning the Russian president gets, gets killed. Like all of a sudden he dies and no one knows what happens. Soon after that, this nuclear bomb goes off in Chechnya, and the Americans believe that it's the Russians who did it, and they start blaming the Russians, and then there's this, like, nuclear race, and it, 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 the, thing, the whole thing is set during the Cold War, uh, nuclear weapons and, and, and all that stuff, um, uh, building, their, build, building their, their nuclear arsenal in order to provoke the other person or to, to prevent the other person from provocation and the other nation from, from, uh, from going on the offensive, all that stuff. Uh, during the Super Bowl, which was held in Baltimore, uh, a nuclear bomb goes off, and the city of Baltimore is destroyed. And so the Americans are thinking, okay, this guy has got to be the Russians. And so there's this, like, standoff, and we're on the brink of World War III. Huge, massive, like, the, the finger's on the button on both of these sides. And then Ben Affleck comes, and he's a CIA agent, and he does, he's a spy, and he does all this research, and he finds out uh, that there's this neo-Nazi group that's behind all of these things. And what that group is trying to do is trying to obliterate America and Russia in order that Europe can become the superpower of the world. And so in this moment, right when there's the tensions are at the highest and they're about to push the nuclear button, he says to the Russian president, he said, there's another enemy. There is another enemy. And it's not you guys. There's another enemy that wants to destroy both of you. And he says, you need to stand down. And they do, and war is averted, and crisis is staved off, at least for that time being. We realize that as people of God, we are not at odds. We may be at odds, but we are not the enemy with each other. I rehearse that in your mind. My wife is not my enemy. My husband is not my enemy. My kids are not the enemy. My Parents are not the enemy. My brother and sister in the church is not the enemy. We've got to understand that because there is an enemy that wants to divide and conquer the people of God. First thing, put on your uniform. Remember, you're on the same team. Second thing, you put on your uniform by forbearance and forgiveness. You put on your uniform by forbearance and forgiveness because I, I know it's easy for us to think, well, how do I do that? How do I put on the clothing of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and faith? How do I do that? We, a, lot of, a lot of girls in our church, little girls, my, uh, our littlest one, uh, Elise, who's uh, three years old, loves wearing dresses. Um, she loves wearing dresses, but um, a lot of times she doesn't know how to put them on because there's too many holes and she doesn't know how to button them. And so uh, she'll find a, a dress that she loves and she'll bring it to, to Oliver or myself and she'll say, uh, can you put this dress on? Can you put this on me? Can you help me put this on? And so we'll put it on and, and we'll button it up for her and she'll go along. What she's saying is, I want to wear this, but I don't know how to do it. 
And this is what Paul is saying here. Because a lot of us may be thinking, I want to do this, but I don't know how. Here's what it says in verse 13. Bear with one another, bear with each other, and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. When you read it in its context with the other verses, he's saying, this is how we are to wear these things, by bearing with one another and by forgiving each other. You know, when you're in conflict with a person, again, think about that person in your mind. Think about that person in your mind. Isn't it true that almost everything that they do is annoying to you? Everything they do is annoying to you. He's saying there's two reasons why. Uh, and, and again, I, I, we've talked about this before. There's two reasons why. One, just because they annoy you. It's something that they do. It's their preference. It's their habit. It's something that they do, but it's not sinful. A- again, it's, man, they need to understand that when there's no more drink in their cup and they make that noise, it annoys everybody. Well, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it just annoys you, but you're at conflict with them, and so everything annoys you. It's not a sinful thing but it's just something that annoys you. Or, man, I I hate the way that they, I don't know, whatever it is that they do, there's something annoying about them. And again, if it's not a sinful thing, he says, bear with one another. Here's the deal, guys. To bear with one another, forbearance, it literally means have a enduring patience with that person. Have an enduring patience with them. Don't fly off the handle. Don't be quick to anger with them. Has there ever been a time when you prayed, Lord, help me to become more like Jesus? Or has there ever been a time where you prayed, God, help me to become more patient? How does God help you to become more patient? Not by when you're sleeping one day, he opens up your brain and pours in patience into you. And then you wake up and you're like, man, I'm a whole lot more patient with people today. He doesn't do that. How does he do that? I'll tell you how he does that. He puts you in relationship with annoying people, and he calls you to an attitude of forbearance so that you might bear with one another in order that you might grow in patience. The person with whom you're in conflict with is God's gift to you in order to make you more like Jesus. But here's what we think. We think that's my enemy. But if we begin to change the way we view people and the way we view this whole thing, God's greatest purpose in your life and in my life isn't to make us comfortable. The American dream's purpose might be to make you comfortable, but that's not God's purpose for you. His purpose is to make you Christ-like, not comfortable, not compromised. This is too difficult for me. Well, this is God's purpose for you. You're on the anvil He's molding you and he's making you so that you can become more like Christ in order that you might do greater things in this world for his glory. That's God's purpose. So are you annoyed with somebody and it's not sinful what they're doing to you? He says, bear with one another. Be patient with one another. Grow in your heart because they are God's given gift to shape you to become more like Christ. You know what, D.L.? They are sinning, though. They're sinning. They've slandered me. They've made up stuff about me. They're saying mean things about me. Okay, cool. Then go to the second thing. Here's how you put on these clothing. He says, forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Can we be honest for a second? 
Have you forgiven the person that you're thinking about in your mind? Have you forgiven them? Not just shoved it down, excused them, forgotten about it. Right? Anyone can forget about it. Well, if you have amnesia, you could forget about it. That has nothing to do with forgiveness. Right? Forgiveness is not about excusing the person. The reason they did that to me was because, well, their dad was abusive too, and his dad was abusive, and his dad was an alcoholic. That's why he beat me. I'll, I'll, I'll just, it's okay. Don't worry about it. No, that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is necessary when there are no excuses for their behavior. Forgiveness is infinitely greater and deeper a well than what any of these things that you might have heard forgiveness to be is. Forgiveness is basically saying, I let go of the right to get even. I let go of my anger in order that I will relinquish the right for justice and leave that to God. That's what forgiveness means. It means I absorb the cost because Christ has absorbed a greater cost of all of my sins against him. It's letting go of the anger and understanding and leaving the results to God. This is hard. I understand because there's some really serious hurt and pain that's been inflicted in the brokenness of this world. Not only do people annoy me, but people hurt us too. What a lot of times we think, that person hurt me, I just want to get even, that's all. I just want to get justice, that's it. I just want to get even. They hurt me last, I just got to hurt them back, and then, and then that's it. An eye for an eye, that's what the Bible says, that's what we say. But do you understand something? The reason that an eye for an eye was given was because we don't really treat other people with an eye for an eye. Someone takes out our eye, what do we do? We take out both of their eyes, and we say, now we're even. No, we're not. You took out both of their eyes. Well, let me take out their eye, but let me but let, me let them know about it. Let me take a picture of it and put it on Instagram so that they know, and everybody knows that we're even now. No, what we do is we don't ever get even. We always want to go the next step. We go to revenge which is beyond getting even. Do you remember? This is, this is the law of the land. And here you get a lot, I get a lot of insights from a guy named Ken Sandy and from a, a John Ortberg. Ken Sandy, um, his ministry called Peacemakers. One of the, if, you, if you have ongoing and, and disastrous conflict destructive in your life, then you've got to read his stuff on Peacemakers. It's amazing. But the law of the world is the law of Lamech in Scripture. Soon after Cain and Abel, there's a guy named Lamech, first polygamist in the Bible, bad man. He gets hurt by somebody. He says, somebody hurt me. And so what Lamech did was instead of hurting them back, he says, he killed them. Right? He says, a young man hurt me, so I killed that dude. That's what we do. We don't get even. We get vengeful. This is what Lamech said. He said, whoever messes with me, I will avenge them 77 times. That'll teach them to mess with Lamech. That's what a lot of us do. Man, we, try to, we try to hurt people back for the way that they've hurt us. And if it's not hurting them directly, we tell other people so that indirectly we can spread the hatred towards other people against that person. Well, don't, they don't know. I, I don't have any issues with that. Yeah, we're, we're cool. But I'll just let them simmer in their pain by telling other people. So when Peter comes into the equation with Jesus... Peter thinks he's a really great guy, really good disciple, 
follow of Christ. He says, Jesus, hypothetically speaking, somebody messes with me. What do I do? How many times do I need to forgive him? Seven times? Is that cool? Peter thinks he's getting extra credit here. You know why? Because the rabbis taught, you just need to forgive three times. Right? Three times. So Peter's thinking, I'm a really good Christian. Right? Jesus said, I'm, I'm the rock. I'm going to build the church. He's going to build the church on my confession. That's me. Here I am. I'm going to go extra credit, double time and one. Right? That's three times three. Three plus three plus one. And so Jesus, he thinks Jesus is going to say, no, 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 Peter. Oh, no, Peter, not seven times, just three times. So Peter's like, Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive? Seven times? Jesus is like, no, 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 not seven times. Seventy times seven. What? Peter's like, what? It literally, he says, 77 times. So Peter's saying, so you mean at the 78th time I don't have to forgive anymore? Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. He's saying, here's what I'm doing. I'm reversing the law of Lamech that says the world says you get revenge. Jesus says you forgive. How many times? As many as it takes. As many as it takes. As many times as Jesus forgives, you've got a fountain. You've got a river of forgiveness flowing out of you. That's what Jesus says. Hey, you can't do this. You can't do this if you don't have Christ in you. You can't. It's impossible because it's not the way of the world. It's not the way of natural people. But what Jesus is saying, hey, you do this, not just because it's the right thing to do, because unless you do, it's going to kill you. What do you do? You have a grudge against somebody? What do you do with a grudge? Can I tell you? Ortberg says it's great. What do you do with a grudge? You nurse that grudge. You bear that grudge. You hold that grudge. What does that sound like? Hold, bear, nurse. It's a baby. And the more you do that, the heavier it gets. And some of us are feeling like, I can't go on. I feel debilitated because I've been nursing. You don't think it's because you're nursing that grudge, but it is. Here's what forgiveness is. It's releasing the prisoner and understanding that the prisoner is you. Can I say that again? This is forgiveness. It's releasing the prisoner and releasing and understanding the prisoner is you. I'm gonna, let me read another message I got this week. Um, so early in the morning on, on last Sunday, about 6 in the morning, someone couldn't sleep all night, stayed up, and they wrote, Pastor DL, I can't go on. I've been verbally slain by my spouse. Could you and my shepherds help me restore my spirit and meet us today? Um, I didn't meet with them. Um, I said, let's listen to the message this week and then see what happens. Later that night, um, after I had preached on conflict and then the, the house church shepherds met with this couple, Sunday night I got this email that said, thank you, Pastor DL, for the timely message and prayers, and thank you to my shepherds for taking the time to comfort and counsel me and my spouse. We appreciate your loving, caring spirit to help me get out of my negative emotional pit. I should have known better and been more alert to guard my heart against the attack of the evil one. Thank you for interceding on our behalf. Thank you, Jesus, for enabling me to accept 
my spouse's apology and help me choose forgiveness. I needed to flush out the hurtful poison afflicting my mind and my spirit. That's what forgiveness is. When we choose not to forgive, we are eating rat poison, Annie Lamott says, and waiting for the rat to die. We're killing ourselves when we live in unforgiveness and bitterness. And so we put on the uniform, put on the clothing through forbearance and forgiveness. The last thing, the last thing is remember that love never, ever, ever goes out of style. Verse 14, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. He's saying for all time, okay, for all time, from 2,000 years ago when this was written until today, whatever the situation, okay, whatever the shifting tides of culture, whatever your relational conflict may be, he says the one thing that will never go out of style over all things, put on love which binds all these together in perfect unity. You can have all of these things, and Paul's saying, listen, if there's, let me just boil all of this down to one word the way that Jesus did. Jesus, out of 613 commandments in all of the Old Testament, what's the most important thing? Basically what Jesus does, takes 613 commandments, throws them into a blender, comes out with a smoothie, and the smoothie says love. That's it. And that's what he's doing here, Paul. Saying, you want to you know an easy way to remember all of this stuff? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Let me boil all that together and give you one thing. It's love. Because all the other clothing of this world, whether it's you got you to get justice, you got to get revenge, whatever it is, these things are like fashion, kind of like our passions. They come and go. But the principle of love is invincible for all time. Nothing will overcome that. And so he says love. Above all else, love. But are you kidding me? Jesus, Jesus, you were there. You were there when you heard what he said to me. You were there when you heard what she did to me. You saw the thing. You know the things that they're saying about me behind my back. How can I love them? Man, they're treating me like their enemy. I know you said that we're not the enemy, but what, what do we do when they act like that? What if they are? Okay, what if they are? What if they are your enemy? What does Jesus say? That our response and our posture should be to those who are our real enemies. He says, love your enemies. There's a countercultural ethic. By this, the people of this world will know that you're different. By this, the people of the world will know that you are God's people when you love one another, even when you love your enemies. He says, that's the countercultural that the Sermon on the Mount came to bring. This is the ethic and the ethos of the people of God. How much more then? When we're not talking about your enemies, but we're talking about your brother, your sister, your husband, or wife, ought we not love them if Jesus says we ought to love our enemies? The best thing that the world can give is just bear with them, just tolerate them, just endure them. Jesus goes a further step and he says, love them because God has loved you. Love. Love. 
when all else fails in that relationship, he says, love. When you're at your wit's end, I've tried everything, he says, love. When nothing else makes sense, he says, love. When you don't know what to do, he says, love. Because above all things, this is the supreme ethic. It's to love and to give yourself away. When you don't know what to do, this is what we do. And I think the greatest expression, one of the greatest expressions of love, you see, because in our world, love is about what we don't do. Okay, you know what? I'm not going to talk smack about them. I'm not going to go egg their house. I'm not going to toilet paper the trees in their yard. I'm not going to throw 600 plastic forks and spoons on their lawn. I'm not going to do those things, okay? In, in, in the world, love is about what we don't do. Don't take revenge. Don't press a lawsuit. Don't push back on them. Don't fight against them. That's what love is in the ways of the world. But in a biblical sense, love is moving from not just not doing the negative, but for wishing the best for that person. That's what love is. Can you wish the best for the person that has hurt you, that has wronged you, that has upset you, that has caused sleepless nights? Can you wish for the best for them? It may not happen overnight, but I think one of the best ways that we can do this, guys, when you talk to other people about that person, that's gossip. When you talk to yourself about that person, that's toxic. But when you talk to God about that person, that's love. And I will be completely honest with you. Of all of the people that I've had difficulties in relationships with, people who've hurt me, I have never had a situation where I've prayed for them and prayed for them and when I did not know what to do, prayed for them, that I did not end up wanting the best for them. I'm not just talking for a short period of time. Because this is what love does. When you get together and you pray and you talk to God about that person, yeah, God hears you and he's working on them. But even more so, he's working on us. Causing us to love. Causing us to forgive causing us to let go, flushing out the toxins from our heart. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. The only way we can love, we say this here all the time, 1 John 4, 19, we love because he loved us first. That's the only way. You can't manufacture love. You can't psych yourself into loving somebody. We love because he loved us first. And our inability to love somebody and our inability to love God is always a function of our inability to understand how loved we are by God. But the more we come to that cross where Jesus prayed for us, where Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, where Jesus showed his love unending to us, the more we come to that place, and this is what we do during Lent. Don't waste our Lent. Don't waste your Daniel fast. Come often to the cross and kneel in that dust 
where you understand humility, you understand kindness, you understand gentleness, you understand kindness, uh, patience, you understand compassion in its pinnacle form. You see Jesus exercising all of these things and over all of that clothed with love for you and for me. We come to this table, we begin to realize again, I need the grace of God more than anybody else. And the more I realize my need for God, the more I realize how much I've been forgiven. This is the parable that Jesus tells. The dude been forgiven of a five zillion dollar debt. Will you not also then forgive the $500 debt that that person has against you? The only way we forgive is if we know that he's forgiven us first. The only way we love is if we know that he's loved us first. The only way we pray for those that we might consider to be enemies is because he prayed for his enemies first. And while we were sinners, to what extent would love go? Christ died for us. The law of Lamech, you hurt me, you pay. Jesus' law says, you hurt me, I will pay. And he did in order that we might be released to love and to pray and to forgive the people that have wronged us. Let's pray. I want us to take uh, that person that we've thought about and reach into our minds and reach into our hearts and grab a hold of that person and, and pull it down into our hands. Just bring that person into your hands and say, Lord Jesus, help me. Help me to love this person the way that you do. Help me to hear you say about them, Father, forgive him, forgive her, for they don't know what they're doing. Understand and see Jesus dying on the cross for them. Brothers and sisters, let's not, let's not slander, let's not hurt, let's not kill the people for whom Jesus Christ has died. Let's love one another, understanding how much he's loved us. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Again, beginning with ourselves, Lord, forgive me for the ways that I've hurt this person, for the ways that I've been okay with a casual, cool, calm indifference towards them rather than loving them the way that I know I ought to. Lord, have mercy on me. Forgive me. Cleanse me. May I see how much I need forgiveness in order then that I might be able to extend forgiveness to others. Let's pray together for a few moments in that way. We're going to come to this table of redeeming grace. The Apostle Paul says, just come in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let's let go of sin, embrace grace. Let's pray for a couple moments and then we'll continue. Father in heaven, we come in need of your mercy. If really there is a supernatural God living inside of us, then we will have the ability to do that which is supernatural. Christianity is not you got to try harder. 
You got to maximize every ounce of effort you've got in order to do these hard things. It's never what Christianity said. So when we put ourselves in line with the means of grace and we fight for that and we strive for that, we can experience God's grace. But it begins with Christ pouring that into us. So Father, for some of us as we go through Lent, maybe this will be the great challenge to pull away from the crazy, busy, hectic schedule of life and get ourselves messy with the dust of the rabbi Jesus, the crucified carpenter, as we gaze upon the greatest act of love and forgiveness the world will ever, ever, ever know. Nothing comes close. But when we get into that place, our hearts begin to melt, and then they begin to swell then we begin to have the capacity to do what only God in us can do. We've seen it. We've tasted his fruit. We're asking that you'd help us to do it again, afresh, in a new way. Lord, we need you. Oh, we need you. So much more than we could ever say. So help us. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.